The reading is from Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 31, and it can be found on page 1103 of the Pew Bibles. Acts chapter 9, verses 26. When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Paul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Helen. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Great to be with you. Please... um, do keep uh, that open uh, in front of you on page 1103. We're, we're um, really, as, as you probably gathered, going to be honing in on verse 31. Um, and uh, you'll see on the screen um, that I put up the verse as well. And uh, I've been finding it quite helpful to see it uh, from the NIV, which is the Pew Bibles, and also from the ESV, different versions. And they can sometimes really help us draw out the, the flavor of the verse. And the verse goes along with our vision statement here at St. John's, which is um, to grow the church and to deepen our commitment to the Lord Jesus. Let's take a moment, shall we, just to pray as we look at this verse together. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray now that you will help us to understand it. We pray that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher, that you'll open our eyes to see what you have to say to us, that we may come under its authority, that we may be challenged and changed and ready to live and walk with your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So some of you have been here a long time, others of you are perhaps newer to St. John's, and I actually spoke on this very verse six years ago, almost to the day, which seems like a long time ago. So I suspect none of you will probably remember that sermon. But six years ago, and it's with that in mind, and with our sense of refreshing the vision at the moment here at St. John's, that I thought it'd be right for us just to come back to this verse that has meant so much to us as a church. And particularly, we'll be thinking more about the the church and the future uh, when we meet tomorrow. And over the next, um, well, the next three months, we're going to be thinking um, about it as well. Um, It's important, isn't it, to ask where we're heading. Um, I think that just is a logical thing. Where are we heading? Because it's so easy to forget. It's so easy, isn't it, to drift 
off um, in a notion that you, you know where you're heading. Um, but the reality is that we can forget. And so it's important that we keep checking in with where we are as a church. And if you think about it, I was thinking about it in the context of like uh, a long-haul flight. Say you're going from London to Singapore and a flight doesn't just take off and arrive in Singapore. It's constantly, the flight takes off from London. It's constantly checking in um, at at each of the, the air traffic controls across Europe and into, into Asia, and it's constantly talking uh, to air traffic control, saying, are we in the right place? This is BA, whatever it is, what, four, five, six. We're heading for Singapore. Uh, this, is, this is us. Are we there? And it's pinging up and down to air traffic control. Um, and I think it's quite a good analogy because it wants to, to make sure it doesn't finish up in Abu Dhabi or somewhere uh, that's completely wrong. Um, and churches need to do this. Often... Um, we think that we're doing fine um, uh, because we're doing stuff. You know, we can do a lot of stuff as a church, and even here at St. John's, um, but we forget why we're doing it. What's the purpose? Um, it reminds me a little bit like my trips to the driving range. I like to go down to Greenwich and smack a few balls out, um, and I'm just smacking them aimlessly into the distance with no real direction. Um, and without thinking where I'm supposed to be heading it towards a, a flagpole or anything. Um, so, you know, Acts 9.31 is one of those moments where we can kind of land and see, are we checking in where we are as a church? Uh, and that's really helpful. Luke does this a number of times in Acts. This is actually the second of six um, particular what he calls what we see as summary verses where he summarizes what's going on and uh, he's very much he's putting a kind of marker post down to check that we're in the right place but before we look at this verse in particular uh, verse 31 it's important that we just take a moment to remember the story so far where are we coming into acts here we're just plonking ourselves down. What's going on? Well, it's been very dramatic. We've had the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter's amazing sermon where they see 3,000 people come to faith. Peter and John are arrested. Uh, uh, well, they, first of all, they heal a blind beggar. You remember that? And then they get arrested. Um, and then they get released again. The church prays for them. Interestingly, if you look at that, they don't pray for release. They pray actually that they may speak um, the word of God boldly. It's interesting in Acts 4. And the assumption is, as you go through, that the gospel will encounter um, opposition and trials and, and difficulties. Uh, and that's what you see as you, as in those early chapters, from chapters 4 uh, through to 5 and 6. You see um, the opposition that can come from outside. Uh, you see opposition that can come from within. And then you see later in Acts 6 the distractions that can come uh, from what's going on in the church. It's kind of a messy picture. It's an unpeaceful situation. And you get Stephen is martyred, the church is persecuted and it scatters. Acts 8, you get the conversion of the Ethiopian, you see the gospel spreading, the word of God is going out, 
And then you get in Acts 9, Saul of Tarsus, of all people who'd been persecuting the church, is now a believer and has come to know Christ. And with all that going on, finally you reach this summary verse in Acts 9, 31, and it's almost breathless astonishment uh, of everything that has gone on, and it begins, so the church, or then the church. And it's a summary verse of what's been going on. Now, this is really going to be an easy sermon in some ways to preach because it's one verse, and uh, there are five parts to the verse, and uh, guess what? There are five points, so that's really easy to follow. Um, And we have the first one up there uh, on the screen. So the church had peace. We've been alluding to this at the beginning as Victoria spoke. It had a chance to catch its breath. Um, it had some sense of rest. Uh, and like when you're, you're on a journey and you're walking or you're cycling or, or whatever it might be, and you come to a place of rest and you pause, you, you stop, don't you? Maybe at the top of a mountain, a place of sightseeing, you get your Marmite sandwiches out. That's what I like, Marmite sandwiches. And you take a moment to recharge and to stop and to look back and survey where you have come from um, in order, actually, to get ready and to prepare to go out again and to go on the next part of the journey. St. John's, we need to do this kind of process at times, to look back in order to look forward. Uh, And sometimes God gives us these moments. It's a a privilege of a moment, isn't it, of peace? But it's also quite a challenging moment because in a moment of calm and peace, you know what can happen. We can take our eye off the ball. See, it's so easy to take your eye off the ball, isn't it, and become complacent. And John Calvin, in his commentary on this verse, he said this. Just listen to this. I'll read it slowly. This, This blessing of the churches at peace is no ordinary blessing, Calvin wrote, and it's not to be despised. Therefore, let us learn not to abuse external peace by being involved in pleasures and idleness, but the more rest that is given us by our enemies to make up our minds to make diligent progress in holiness when we get the chance. It's a real blessing and opportunity for us to take a time. Um, and so it's one thing, you see, when you're busy facing lots of difficulty and lots of perhaps external threats or internal difficulties to, to become distracted. But in a moment of calm, you can really perhaps take time to focus on the, the holiness of God as we've been singing. And if we think about it, the last two years have been anything but peaceful for the church, just as it's the case for, for the nation. We see it nationally for the church, but we see it locally for us. We've experienced great ups and downs, great highs and lows, for, for many reasons, and it can take its toll. And so as we kind of look back and see what's happened, we, we could actually sit down with our Marmite sandwiches and think this is a moment and a time just to take it easy and to relax and not worry about things. 
But that's not actually what we're seeing here in Acts at all. And actually, that's not what Acts 9.31 is about. It's actually taking a time of peace to prepare us for something. And what do we see in this time of peace? And this is the second part of the verse. We see the church is strengthened. It's strengthened and it's built up, as it says in the ESV. Um, so the, the sense is that people are actively being built up. In, as Jesus said, he said he would build his church, didn't he, in Matthew 16, 18. But how does that happen? How's that been happening? Well, first and foremost, we see it through the ministry of word and prayer. You can see that right through Acts uh, chapter 6, verse 4, and Acts 2, verse 42. Through the ministry of word and prayer. In Ephesians 4, we discover that part of the overflow from Christ's death, resurrection, and then ascending is that he gifts his church and the gifts spill out to his people. And he talks about the primary role of the pastor teacher giving the word of God. It says in uh, Ephesians 4.12 this, he, he says that that word of God given to pastors to teach, is to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Same words as we find in Acts 9.31. It may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So, yes, ministers and pastors have that primary responsibility to teach, pastor and to teach God's people. Um, and it's not just invested in one person, although we have a, a primary role in that. Um, we should expect it in me and others who teach. But the truth is, don't we, we do live in a rather anti-clerical uh, society nowadays, or it seems that way um, there was an Ipso Mori poll uh, a few years ago um, that talked about who were the most trusted professions in the world, uh, in this nation. And uh, 50 years ago, it was um, ministers were one of the very highest. Uh, but uh, now that the top one is doctors, the most trusted profession, teachers, judges, scientists, hairdressers, and clergy come, don't even come close. And hairdressers, I'm sure, are very trusted people in society. <laughs> but it is an immense privilege and a responsibility to teach and pastor faithful, faithfully to God's word. Because it is the process. It is the process by which we're built up and we're strengthened. And we see that through Acts. Now... Um, the primary aim to being built up and strengthen believers, of course, isn't just to sort of fill our minds with kind of information, is it? Just to kind of download some data, um, to ram us full of some helpful hints for getting through life. It's not really about that. The word of God is to be cro- proclaimed in such a way that we're actually encountering the living Lord Jesus, so that he then shapes our lives. He transforms us from the inside out. 
So that his external truth affects us in all sorts of ways, in the way that we live uh, and the way that we act. That's being built up. It's not just a kind of, I take some information and I go away. Is that something that is happening to us? That's really important. Has the word of God come into us so that we know God is speaking to us? And that's why we should actually value meeting together, whether it's in church like this or whether it's in our small groups where we're gathering around God's word and learning to put it into action. But when the people of God neglect building, being built up by the word of God, what can happen? Well, we become spiritually malnutritioned. I can't, I've got that phrase wrong. We become malnutritioned, don't we? Um, uh, because we're not being fed. And we become then susceptible to decay and to attack and to temptation and to doubt as well when that doesn't happen. You see, it's not um, just a kind of passive process either. This kind of building up requires us to be involved. We all have a responsibility to this kind of fellowship, to urge one another on in this kind of task. Um, but we have, to, we have to urge ourselves on before, as well as urging others. It's a bit like, um, you know, those air stewardesses when they do the air stewards when they do the um, the safety check you know they they say something along the lines of in the event of decompression place the oxygen mask over your your nose and mouth first don't they before you help somebody else Um, and that makes perfect sense doesn't it because if you if you pass out you can't help anyone else can you (laughs) And so it's got to be our personal responsibility before the Lord to, to do this. And in order to then help our brothers and sisters um, being built up. So um, that's um, being built up. That enables the, the church to be built up, to be strengthened. It's about hearing and receiving God's word. And then it says here in uh, verse 31 so that we might walk in the fear of the Lord. You can tell a lot, apparently, about somebody by the way they walk. Do you watch people walk? Maybe I'm near, Maybe that sounds really awful that I watch people's walk. Now you're going to be really paranoid, aren't you, when he see you next, that you, Eddie's watching me walk. <laughs> but apparently you can tell a, very, a, a great deal about somebody by the way that they walk. Um... In 2012, uh, psychologists um, videotaped people walking up and down a stretch of... Uh, and uh, what they did is they, they mapped their walking um, and took in all sorts of information um, about the person just purely by their, their walking and tried to match it with their sort of personality traits... And um, the participants in these these studies, they found that they could actually detect from the way that people walked, whether they were the kind of the adventurous type or whether they were warm or approachable types. I don't know how that that works. But um, there was some kind of correlation between the way that they walk and the personality of the person. I don't know whether you believe that, but that's what they... This is this research they came up with. Um... The way you walk and live as a Christian 
talks, says a massive amount about what you believe, doesn't it? And, and who you believe in. Um, Psalm 130 says, um, If you, O Lord, keep a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. So this idea of walking uh, in the fear of the Lord, walking in the fear of the Lord. Listen to this verse again from Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, keep a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Does that not sound like the wrong way round to you when you hear it? That you fear God and then you come to him and you're forgiven. But it says here, um, but with you there is forgiveness and therefore you are feared, Lord. Because that's the sense of, of what walking in the fear of the Lord is actually about. It's about knowing that you are forgiven and still walking in the fear of the Lord. What do, I, what do I mean this? Well, because we assume fear of God means to be frightened of God, doesn't it? At the prospect of judgment. Instead, fear, correctly understood, is actually the, the product of forgiveness. And therefore, the fear of God is actually to do with reverence for God, of awe at God, at what he has done for us in forgiveness. You see, it comes as a response. It says, wow, God, you're so amazing that you've forgiven me. It comes from a relationship um, with God and knowing his mercy and his grace to us. It's a bit like, if you imagine it like this in a different analogy, imagine a group of young lads, um, they could be young women, I suppose, as well, and they're throwing stones at um, some windows, smashing them, and and they're egging each other on to do this in a group or something. But one of the lads doesn't want to get involved and says to the other boys... um, well, the other boys start turning on him and doing the usual, you know, you're just afraid um, of your father um, because um, he'll punish you if he finds out about what you've done. But once if the boy turns and says instead, no, I, I'm not afraid at what he will do to me. I'm afraid of what it will do to my father. It's a slightly different way of thinking about it, isn't it? The fear of God isn't a a kind of servile fear from what God might do to us. No, walking in the fear of God is walking in relationship with a holy God. Um, Walking with him who is an almighty creator of the world who's given us his son. Uh, and what will that be like? That will, that will sense as we walk with God, we'll realise just how, how, how small, in a sense, we are to this, in, and how incomparable he is. And that will humble us and humble our hearts. Um, so it's about reverent fear, isn't it? Um, knowing uh, that he is God. So that's the far, first mark of being built up and being strengthened, is the walk in the fear of the law. But there's secondly, it says here, um, that we're walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. 
So this is the fourth one, walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Um, Matt Baker, who was here this, this morning, preached on this um, very verse as well, because we wanted to give this verse to um, all the different services. And he, he talked about the Bayer Tapestry, which I thought was a, a really good illustration about what it means to have the comfort of uh, the Holy Spirit. Um, if you know that tapestry, it's a massive um, tapestry produced in France to commemorate um, the Norman invasion of Britain in 1066 and their victory at the Battle of Hastings. And it depicts one of Duke William's um, supporters, Bishop Odu. And Bishop Odu in this, in this tapestry is prodding a reluctant um, Norman soldier into battle at the uh, kind of with the butt end of the spear he's sort of prodding him and underneath the tapestry in incisive comments that it says um, that King William comforteth because it's in that language he comfort comforteth his soldiers <laughs> hang on a minute that sounds a bit strange he's what he's comforting them with a sword up their backs as it were um But you see, the comfort of the Holy Spirit isn't just an arm around us. Now, of course, he does come alongside us and comfort us in times of great need. Don't don't miss that. But often what he does, the work of the Spirit, is to to prod us, actually, into action, to mobilise us for battle, rather like in that tapestry. Um, His power isn't only for the healing of the brokenhearted and for defeating, but it's also actually for defeating the enemy. Power does make him a great comforter. Yes, he is to comfort us in that we do need to be lifted up when we're brokenhearted, but also we need to be challenged and prodded into action. And so I, I think we should hold those two senses of the work of the Holy Spirit the un, uh, the, uh, as I've wrote down here, the uncomfortable comforter of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he sometimes, that is what we need, because sometimes we get into our comfortable zones, don't we, as Christians, and especially in a time of peace. So at times, it's going to get a bit uncomfortable for all sorts of reasons. How might we need to be prodded. So they had peace. God built them up. They walked in reverent fear of God and the resources of the Holy Spirit. And then it says, finally, um, they multiplied. So the church multiplied. It, It grew. How did it happen? It didn't happen by the 10 step plan of church growth or some fancy book or a big change in the music or didn't happen by having shorter sermons or getting a package of self-help DVDs, all that kind of stuff that you think might be useful. It didn't happen in a vacuum, certainly. I suppose, as I think about church growth and um, about this multiplication, this increase in numbers, it is true that we can get so fixated on numbers, isn't it? Um, 
One of the most disturbing things that can happen to people in my position is that you go to conferences and you see other clergy, and one of the first things that they say to you is, how big's your church? (laughs) And uh, it's, I say, well, it's usually about 30 metres high, and it's about 25 metres across, or something completely uh, subversive in that way. But it, it sort of, we have to be careful with numbers, but it, it is true. We want people to come to know the Lord Jesus. We want our church to grow, don't we, in numbers. Um, God is the one who adds to the numbers. Uh, as it says in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, I think it's 7 or 8, it says that God gives the growth. And we must remember that it's God who gives the growth. We have a part to play, but it's God who gives the growth. So, the church had peace. It was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That's what a healthy church looks like. That's... Uh, my prayer, particularly for us as a church, I hope it's your prayer. And tomorrow night we're going to be thinking more about this and over the weeks to come and what this means and how this will look for us. And we're joined together uh, thinking that through and praying that through. And I hope that you too will do that. Let's um, bow our heads and I'll lead us in prayer. Father God, we come before you today and we ask that we would indeed be built up, that we'd be strengthened in your word, that we may be transformed by it, so that we might walk in the reverent fear of the Lord and in the power of the uncomfortable comforter, so that we might grow that we might multiply, we might see people come to know Jesus. Show us grace, Father, we pray. Show us the way in which we should be involved in the things that we can do as individuals, as a church. Speak to our hearts, we pray, and refresh this vision here at St. John's. We only ask because of your dear Son's sake, the one who died for us, the one who rose again, the one who's given us life. We ask this in his name. Amen.